Chapter 8 Personalization Movies might seem like Disney's core business, but they are really marketing vehicles. Most of the company's billions come from turning movie hits into franchises, first with toys and TV shows, then with theme park rides that imprint kids anew, powering sequels, and selling more toys. Amusement parks are the flywheel in Disney's cash machine. But by 2007, there were unmistakable signs that something was wrong in the Magic Kingdom. The numbers had started to turn, the most worrying being intent to return. Only half of new visitors to Disney World said that they'd come back, owing to lines and ticket costs. Thanks to a park running at twice the capacity that Walt Disney had planned for, there were lines everywhere for rides and ice cream and bathrooms and food. Then there was the hassle of tracking tickets to the park and tickets to rides, and receipts and credit cards and maps and keys. Disney executives whispered to one another that the parks, once a bedrock of their quarterly results, might just be a burning platform. They worried, if we miss out on that next generation of guests, suddenly our burning platform is fully on fire, one of them told Fast Company's Austin Carr, panic mode. In 2008, Meg Crofton, who was then president of Disney Resorts, assembled her top deputies and told them to fix it. We were looking for pain points, she said. What are the barriers to getting into the experience faster? This notion of pain points was an intimation of the design thinking process they were hoping to emulate and the path they would follow next. They started by diagramming what a day at Disney World looked like for a typical family a process called journey mapping in human-centered design. This was a cat's cradle of crisscrossing paths. The day started when families would sprint from the opening gates to grab advance tickets for the most popular rides. Later, families would often split up to make sure everyone could do what they wanted. They might cross in front of Cinderella's castle 20 times a day. Looking at that map of what people went through was like putting a well-loved old couch on the curb. By the harsh light of day, you saw the stains you'd been living with for years and thought, I can't believe we let it get like this. Not only that, the world was changing. By 2008, if you were a business executive with an eye toward coming disruptions, it was already clear that the year-old iPhone was poised to redefine expectations for convenience. What happened when the kids who'd grown up with the world on demand started contemplating where to take their kids on vacation? On the surface, we had super happy guests. But in reality, we were making them go through so much hassle at the park that down the road, they would simply say, no mas, said one former manager. John Paget was part of the Fix-It team flying back and forth between Disney headquarters in Burbank, California, and Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. They were all on the plane again early one morning, taxiing for takeoff, when he started thumbing through the Sky Mall catalog, a new one that he hadn't seen 20 times before. Paget spied the Tryon Z, a rubber wristband that placed a magnet over the wearer's pulse point, under the dubious theory that the magnet could improve your balance and your golf swing. It was pseudoscience, but also radical. It assumed that we'd attach little techno bits to our bodies to better ourselves. Paget wondered if a wristband might be the key 
to an entirely new Disney World. By 2013, there was gossip in the design community about what Disney had created, a wristband that rendered every bit of commerce in the park invisible and had cost nearly $1 billion to develop. In 2015, after wrangling with Disney's press minders for two years, I finally went to see for myself. As I walked to the park, the most remarkable thing about the Disney Magic Bands was that they were already as ubiquitous as sunburns and giant frozen lemonades. They were already invisible. Today, Be Our Guest, Disney World's Beauty and the Beast-themed restaurant, is such a meticulous fantasy that it feels not like 2D or 3D, but 2.5D, like a pop-up rising from a storybook. You approach through a crumbling gothic gate, airbrushed fiberglass actually, then cross a tiny drawbridge flanked by scowling gargoyles. You look up at a mauve, parapeted miniature castle, peeking from behind a fake ridge of fake granite. There's a weird dilation in scale. The gate is more or less normal size, the bridge is just a little bit squished, and the castle is made tiny so as to look very far away. These compressed spatial effects were a psychological hack invented by Walt Disney himself to make visitors feel larger than their everyday lives. It works. It feels like you're walking a half mile with just a few steps, a jump cut to another place. The entrance itself is teensy, so that the Disney staff can buttonhole everyone who enters with a cheerful hello. If you've arrived wearing a magic band, then there's a telling bit of friction that disappears. Sit anywhere you like, and the food simply finds you. How will they find our table? It's like magic, I heard a woman tell her family as they sat. The couple's young son flitted about the table like a moth. Soon, the family's food had arrived, delivered by a smiling young man pushing a serving cart. The woman's sensible question faded with the rising aroma of French onion soup and roast beef sandwiches. This was by design. When Disney's executives were deciding which experiences might be overhauled in the park, they focused on Be Our Guest, whose popularity meant that when visitors arrived, exhausted and tired, they'd be met with another line. To fix all that, the family I was eavesdropping on was shadowed by a chorus of technology the moment everyone crossed the moat, a chorus geared toward serving them invisibly. How will they find our table? It was the magic bands, and the technology silently working inside them, which could eliminate every slightest weight they might have encountered. The bus ride from the airport, checking into their hotel and getting into their room, the entry to the park, paying for anything inside. In each magic band was a radio chip transmitting 40 feet in every direction. When that family had arrived, the kitchen got the message. Two French onion soups, two roast beef sandwiches. When that family finally sat down, their magic bands pinged the radio receiver in the table. The server then got their coordinates and found them, knowing exactly what they'd ordered. Today, we are surrounded more and more by technology like this meant to serve us without our ever having to ask or even to push a button. No matter how often we say we're creeped out by technology, we acclimate surprisingly quickly if it anticipates what we want. Just consider how a smartphone tells you when you need to leave for an appointment, or how Gmail now suggests what you'll type. Today, 
Those smart replies make up over 10% of all messages sent with Gmail. Today, Google Maps is, by default, studded with your history of location searches and events arranged with friends, all in the effort to anticipate rather than merely respond. The convenience takes hold before the goosebumps can set in. The utility is so obvious that consent has simply been assumed. Yet the surprising thing revealed at Disney World was that when we see the same ease applied not just on our phones, but in the environment around us, we usually shrug and dig into our roast beef sandwiches. This is the reason the magic bands might have been worth $1 billion to Disney. Using them, the company had managed to recast its cold business logic, the chance to turn over tables quicker by eliminating many aspects of waiter service, into something a vacationing family of three had actually described as magic. Somehow, Disney World had turned a high-tech surveillance operation into a delight. When the magic bands were being designed, that alchemy seemed to afford endless possibilities. When people crossed that fairy tale drawbridge and saw that castle, sensors could pick them up as they approached. In the original imagining of Be Our Guest, the host would greet them by name and ask about the rides they'd taken, knowing exactly where they'd gone and what they'd reserved for the rest of their trip. In the original vision for the magic bands, the park cameras, combined with the park sensors, would have been able to stitch together a movie of every person's visit to be revealed as a souvenir at the end, as if you'd been a guest in your very own Truman Show. And yet those features weren't ever flipped on. Not because they couldn't be, but because somewhere along the way, Disney had lost its will. This was a surprise. Of all the places for such ambitions to be carried out, it should have been Disney World, which was founded on Walt Disney's obsession with painting cutting-edge technology in its cheeriest hues. As Neil Gabler wrote in his definitive biography, Disney wanted to craft a better reality than the one outside. His fervor was born of watching his first park, Disneyland, become a blight. In the 1950s, its runaway success had transformed the cityscape around it into a hive of tacky hotels, garish billboards, and seediness. Heartbroken, he concluded that you couldn't create magic if you didn't first create order at a grand scale. With his company sliding into financial disarray after a string of movie busts, he borrowed against his own life insurance to fund the Florida Project. Where Disneyland was the size of the reservoir in Central Park, Disney World would be 40 square miles, roughly the size of San Francisco. Walt Disney would go to sleep every night with the plans pasted up on the tiles above his bed. He would die just a few years later, looking up at those tiles. The park couldn't have been built without an abiding faith in a user-friendly world, where commerce was social progress, and better design meant a better life. Where there wasn't a technological solution, Walt Disney resorted to ingenious stagecraft. His vision started in the tunnels. When you visit Disney World, you're not on flat ground. Rather, you stand atop one of the largest mounds ever built, veined with burrows, created so that the cast members, playing Goofy or Mickey, can suddenly appear where they're meant to be and disappear like on a stage, never to be seen smoking or gossiping or bitching about the smell of their suits. 
Even the gaps between the rides were designed to make art. They were vast areas of blankness that cleared the palette between scenes of Main Street or the American West. Walt Disney was designing an experience based on the aesthetic of the movies and theater, where everything inessential has to be stripped away so that reality can be concentrated. Forty years after it opened, today's Disney World does indeed offer a glimpse of a frictionless world with annoyances buffed away by technology. But only a glimpse, because the magic bands, and the original dream for them, buckled under reality. The difficulties Disney saw in realizing its vision show why giant companies hoping to build the user-friendly world are reaching the limit of what they can create. It isn't from a lack of design, technology, or vision. Nor is it because we're simply not ready. Rather, the difficulties lie in how the companies themselves are designed. The alluring visions being dreamed up in places such as Disney World and the tech behemoths in Silicon Valley are hitting a new limit. The dilemma lies in somehow convincing thousands of people to work in concert on the tiniest details so that the seams never show, and getting those tiny details to reflect a unified experience. And yet their seams show nonetheless. Whether it's in the new features crammed onto your phone, the futuristic smart home that turns out to be a buggy mess in real life, or the theme park that was meant to be magical, yet falls short of what it should be. The seams these companies are striving to hide away still persist, because they reflect how the companies themselves are built, the groups inside them fighting for control, and the people inside those groups who may or may not understand how a thousand tiny trade-offs, all of them reasonable enough, might chip away at an experience until it's dust. With his aw shucks grin, neatly parted hair, and a more than passing resemblance to Richie Cunningham, you can easily picture John Paget as a kid growing up in 1970s Seaford, Virginia, a small town near the Navy shipyards where they built aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines. Nearly all his neighbors worked at the yards as tradesmen, electricians and machinists, and welders like his grandfather. Seeing the Navy yards every day taught him that massive scale wasn't anything to fear. You might pass beneath the shadow of an impossibly huge aircraft carrier, and it was just guys like your next-door neighbor building it one rivet at a time until the whole thing grew bigger than life. Paget grew up learning to be a carpenter himself. Massive scale has become his obsession. He was the prime mover of Disney's Magic Band and My Magic Plus, the digital platform that unifies the Magic Band experience. He was the co-author on more than a dozen patents that, once realized, transformed how tens of millions of people move through Disney World. The project eventually dragooned a thousand employees and contractors. It meant laying tens of thousands of sensors everywhere in the park and integrating more than a hundred disparate data systems. All of it was marshaled toward the single goal of turning the park into a giant supercomputer, capable of absorbing real-time data about where guests are, what they're doing, and what they want. Paget and the other key executives trying to erase all the hassle of visiting Disney World were not among Disney's Imagineers, the demigods of fun who create Disney's attractions. In the hierarchy of Disney's creative culture, it was the Imagineers who usually held the most sway. They thought they owned the magic. Partly, this was Walt Disney's doing. 
He set up the Imagineers to be the innovation engine, and he couldn't anticipate the limitations of that arrangement. Paget's group, by contrast, were veterans of the company's sprawling operations division, the people managing the gnarly realities of running the park, from keeping people from scamming ride reservations to reuniting lost kids with their families. Unlike the Imagineers, these people didn't see Disney World as the sum of its best attractions. They saw the park with X-ray vision and saw the bones holding everything up. That they'd be the ones with the new plan for the park amounted to blasphemy in the eyes of the Imagineers. And that was even before they started letting their imaginations loose on what their system might become. The magic bands themselves are simple. Cleanly designed rubber wristbands offered in cheery shades of blue, green, and red. Inside each is an RFID chip and a radio like those in a 2.4 gigahertz cordless phone. You reserve them when you book your ticket online. At that time, you can pick what rides you'd like to go on. Then, in the weeks before your trip, the wristband arrives in the mail, etched with your name. I'm yours. Try me on. For kids, the magic band is supposed to be like a Christmas present tucked under the tree, perfumed by anticipation. Disney executives like to call it a modest kind of superpower, wielding access to the park. It is amazing how much friction Disney engineered away. You can tap it anywhere there's a telltale Mickey icon. There's no need to rent a car or waste time at the baggage carousel. There are no hotel keys or admission tickets to deal with. You don't need to wait in long lines. Inside, you can show up to the rides you've already reserved at your appointed time, and the itinerary you follow has been calculated to keep your route from crisscrossing the grounds. You don't even have to go to the trouble of taking out your wallet when your kid grabs a stuffed Olaf and begs for, just this one thing, please. You just wave your magic band. Tom Staggs couches Disney's goals for the magic band system in an old saw from Arthur C. Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, he told me. That's how we think of it. If we can get out of the way, our guests can create more memories. At the time, Staggs was the chief operating officer of the entire $168 billion Walt Disney Company empire, a parks veteran in line to become Disney's next CEO. The magic bands were one of the crowning achievements of his tenure. Surely enough, after they were deployed, guests were spending more money. 70% were likely to recommend a visit, and 5,000 more of them could fit in the park every day, owing to more efficiently distributed crowds. Staggs had the ramrod posture, trapezoidal jaw, and friendly face of an ex-varsity star you meet again at your high school reunion. We talked over teleconference, he from Disney's headquarters in Burbank. I was in a large room hidden within the support wings of Disney World, surrounded by charts and graphs projected onto the wall, displaying all the information constantly flowing in from the park. At a long folding table, in a room that looked like it had been set for a PTA meeting, I could glimpse the park breathing people in, breathing data out. Like many corporate bigwigs, Staggs relayed the grand ideas that have bubbled up in him with a suave common sense calibrated for Wall Street. You could see why he, and Disney, would have been so keen on the bands. Instead of telling your kid that you'll try to meet Elsa or ride It's a Small World, you get to be the hero, promising a ride or a meet and greet up front. 
then you can be freer to experience the park more broadly. You're free to take advantage of more rides, said Nick Franklin, one of Staggs's former deputies. Disney knows that parents arrive to its parks thinking, we have to have tea with Cinderella, and where the hell is that Buzz Lightyear thing anyway? The magic bands let you set an agenda and let everything else flow around it. The ability to plan and personalize has given way to spontaneity, said Staggs. And that feeling of ease just might make you more apt to come back, especially if a cast member had more time to make you feel welcomed. All along, the other goal of the system had been to optimize how the park employees behaved by trading the time they spent fiddling with transactions into time spent actually interacting with guests. The Magic Bands and My Magic Plus allowed employees to move past transactions into an interactive space where they can personalize the experience, Crofton told me in an interview in 2014. What started as a sprawling technology platform was meant to change the emotional timbre of the park. Yet that's when I started to detect the first cracks in the story that I was being told. The executives were frustratingly vague on what happened next. I'd talked to dozens of people who teased what might happen if the sensors in the park kept proliferating and the system kept growing. Invisibly, the park's myriad cameras could capture candid moments of your family, enjoying rides, meeting Snow White, and stitch them together into a personalized film. The park's computers might recognize when you'd waited in line just a little bit longer than you were supposed to, and sent a conciliatory text message and a coupon for free ice cream. With that, they would have hooked the white whale of customer service, turning a negative experience into a positive one. That's why casinos comp you drinks and shows when you lose. And that was just the technology itself. The system was meant to eliminate annoying frictions, such as lines, and replace them with a stage-crafted serendipity. Mickey, whose minders could track you through the park, could surprise you with the script tailored to your birthday, asking if you'd like to walk together to the next ride. On the Little Mermaid ride, the seagull might call out your name. As another executive told the New York Times in 2013, when the Magic Band was first announced, we want to take experiences that are more passive and make them as interactive as possible, moving from, cool, look at that talking bird, to, wow, amazing, that bird is talking directly to me. Those ideas were never realized. Two years after Disney had promised a magical seagull that knew who you were, it could be found squawking on a loop to an empty room. The company had a mountain of ideas about what it might create. The fight was over whose right it was to do it. The Imagineers zealously guarded the rides and attractions, and the idea that someone from ticketing could waltz in and reinvent the park experience was like someone laying asphalt telling you how to design a Ferrari. They presumed that the rides themselves would be the magic. To say that magic might live in the negative space between the rides was anathema. The war devolved, as one executive described, into booger flicking. Once, when the magic bands were being tested out to show how they could be used to ID passengers zipping along on a ride, so that the animated characters might call visitors out by name, Imagineers sat on their magic bands, hoping they wouldn't work. They did anyway. Another time, one faction had cast members try to sneak past the gates, hoping to show the system could never be secured. Meanwhile, 
The rank and file working on the Magic Band project groused that Staggs just wanted to see the project sewn up tight so that he could take credit and move on to his big promotion before things got messy. In the end, no one could agree what the Magic Band would become. The vision had been to join all these new experiences into one simple device, on one single platform. But to do that, the entire company had to agree to work together in ways they never had before, and they couldn't. In setting the Imagineers on a pedestal apart from operations, Walt had created a model common across countless companies today, in which innovation is viewed as a function owned by an anointed few, rather than an emergent property of the system. This was the dilemma in which Paget and his peers found themselves. Disney already had its Imagineers. In setting up another innovation group, the problem of crafting a shared vision was only magnified. As studies have shown, innovation labs usually fail not because of a lack of ideas, but because at some point, those new ideas require new ways of working. To be sure, the bones of the Magic Band project are still there. The ticketless entry, the ride reservations, the checkouts and check-ins with the wave. But it all remained frozen in place, undeveloped, short of its original promise. In the couple of years after the Magic Bands were rolled out, Almost all the lead executives attached to the project had quit or were fired, even Tom Staggs. Disney wasn't experiencing something unique. Rather, it was experiencing something that has become common in this user-friendly era, when entire organizations have to work together to create one simple thing that every one of their customers will touch. How do you get 1,000 people to agree on a single detail in an app? or one tiny piece of the magic band system, if they don't share a vision. The modern corporation wasn't designed to serve up a coherent experience. It was designed for the division of labor, to expand its energies on the efficiency of the parts, rather than the shape of the whole. Those seams are obvious once you start to look at them. How Amazon's website has started to seem not like Amazon, but like a photo negative of Amazon's organizational structure with entire rabbit holes of navigation dedicated to video, groceries, audiobooks, music, even a weird section of the website telling you all the things you can do on Alexa, which is its own weird universe that mysteriously connects to all that other stuff. Google and Apple aren't different. You can use a Google app in one place, and it seems to know everything you've ever asked Google. And then you can use Gmail, and it will suggest that you, a straight-laced middle-aged man, Reply to an email saying, you got it. Apple, meanwhile, would have you believe that all its products are wrapped up into tidy boxes that just work, and yet keep shoehorning useless buttons and invisible features into their software, seeming not to care about whether anyone bothers to use them. As one Apple employee once told me, I'm always showing people all these things they can do on their phones, and they say, oh, you know all these amazing hacks. And I have to say, no, these aren't hacks. This is how it was designed. The point of all these examples is that in each of them, you can feel the companies behind these products, which seem so polished, fighting with themselves. This isn't to say those companies are failing or even struggling. Far from it. But even while their core businesses keep hauling money in, the possibilities of what they might build seem ever more elusive. And so these companies, 
with their hundreds of different products and business units, become bigger and harder to navigate over time. Instead of offering more with less friction, they simply offer more. You can feel those companies shunting hard decisions onto their users, asking them to figure out what the company couldn't figure out for itself. Within the trade, this is often described as shipping your org chart. This is the greatest open challenge in the user-friendly world. How to create one coherent face to the user when the company behind that face is really a federation, atomized in order to make the work efficient. If the most influential companies in the world can't do it, you can bet that it's an open problem as to how to do it. Perhaps there is a natural limit to how much people can collaborate on a shared vision. Or perhaps one of those companies will invent new tools and a new way of working. Or perhaps a newer company will come along and sweep them all away by better assembling the pieces they've already laid. John Paget, the man who'd kicked off the $1 billion Magic Band project after seeing a gimmick in a SkyMall catalog, was among those who left Disney. He was looking for another job, one in which it might be easier to realize one vision, instead of fighting against dozens. Ask him what the goal of the whole Magic Band project was, and he'll say, it wasn't just to deliver what you already said you wanted, to deliver your order at a restaurant, but to anticipate what you'd want. After he was well into his next act, I asked him why the promise went unfulfilled at Disney. He stared through me impassively, then his eye twitched. I'll let you be the judge of that, he said. He'd wanted not just to make things frictionless, but to make it feel as if you were the only person in the world who mattered. Not long after quitting Disney, Paget met the CEO of Carnival, Arnold Donald. Donald wanted Paget to figure out how to make every cruise offered by the $40 billion company feel personal. Not only the 105 ships, but the 740 destinations around the world, each of which had its own culture and staff. It was the kind of company Paget knew and the kind of scale he dreamed of. Take the name off both Disney and Carnival, and you're left with companies that had swelled to include real estate, infrastructure, logistics, boats, and hundreds of restaurants. Theme parks and cruise ships offer the one thing that, for the time being, eludes the tech giants of Silicon Valley. A truly controlled environment that can be imbued with enough sensors to glean where you are and who you are. But the difference was the amount of control Paget was being offered. A seat at the top, rather than just below it, and support from on high so that he might better instill a vision. He had at his command similar pieces, but a new level of command over them. There is nothing so similar to a theme park as a modern cruise ship. Unless you're one of the few vacationers who've taken a cruise, about 2% of all global hotel rooms are aboard ships. You probably don't realize the size and scale of their operations. Take the Regal Princess. She's almost 1,100 feet long, and her 19 decks are 217 feet tall. She carries 3,500 passengers and 1,300 crew, and ranks as one of the 30 largest cruise ships in the world. As big as she is, she probably won't be all that remarkable in a decade because of the economics of the cruise business. Larger ships expend less fuel per passenger. The money saved can then go to adding more attractions, which in turn 
are geared toward attracting as many types of people as possible. Thus, in 1996, the Carnival Destiny was the world's largest cruise ship, weighing 100,000 tons and carrying 2,600 passengers. Today, the Harmony of the Seas is more than twice as heavy and carries up to 6,780 passengers and 2,300 crew. On a typical cruise ship, you can do almost anything, from attending violin concertos to playing blackjack to bungee jumping. And that's just the ship. Most of a cruise is spent in port, where each day there are dozens of excursions available. That avalanche of choice creates the stress that was first named thanks to social media, FOMO, fear of missing out, of having to discover and book the perfect thing and missing out if you don't. You can see why people are so overwhelmed that they don't want to take a cruise, said Jan Swartz, president of Princess Cruises, the first of Carnival's 10 brands to adopt the platform that John Paget came to develop. All that choice might be invisibly depressing demand because people simply don't understand what a cruise is. On a small scale, we've seen what happens when options and features begin to bloat a product. Consider the example of the VCR that no one in your family ever knew how to work. All the add-ons just kept adding on because they were easy to sell, even if no one used them once they got home. Same with cars or appliances or TV apps. The individual pieces have gotten simpler, easier to use. The entirety has gotten more complex, so that we now drown in an abundance of choice. Instead of picking a DVD to watch from a couple thousand at Blockbuster, you have tens of thousands of movies on demand through Netflix and hundreds of thousands more through Apple and Amazon. Without a new interaction metaphor that can organize all those options with the new mental model, we're left in a world defined by what the psychologist Barry Schwartz called the paradox of choice. Presented with too many options, it's easy to choose nothing or to be disappointed with what you choose. That's the promise of personalization, to give us exactly what we want most while we spend as little energy as possible on making a decision. The stress of overwhelming choice is one that companies such as Amazon and Netflix are attempting to solve with algorithms but it typically can't be addressed in the physical world. When Donald first approached Paget with the question of how you'd make a massive cruise feel personal, Paget had already been working on the answer for a decade. But ever the showman, he kept his ideas quiet. He told Donald, with his typical swagger, give me six months, a few million dollars, and I'll give you a presentation that will change the course of this company that he could be telling the CEO such a thing at all revealed a crucial difference with Disney. Organizational theorists point out that it's not enough for change to be proposed or for it to make sense. The need has to be felt. At Carnival, Paget wasn't just proposing change. He was being asked for it. Paget's gold-plated self-confidence can be either inspiring or maddening, depending on whom you ask. There were Disney veterans who'd storm a castle with him and others who'd just as soon burn him alive. But the results are hard to argue with. Paget's presentation to Donald wasn't a PowerPoint, but an entire building. Carnival's Experience Innovation Center looks just like any other bland office building you'd find in any other office park in Miami. But when I first visited, 
in the summer of 2017, about a year and a half into the decade-long project. The perfunctory lobby offered a hint of the constant construction and reconstruction that's been going on. There was a steel door leading to the inner sanctum, and sprays of dust emanating from all around the door jam, as if something had just exploded on the other side. Through the door, there was a reception desk and a painted message on the wall, seven feet tall, from Buckminster Fuller. The best way to anticipate the future is to design it. Fuller, forefather of design thinking, had been a formative influence on the Stanford professor John Arnold. It was dark, and the rooms beyond weren't rooms, but rather curtained-off sound stages. There was a sun deck, a hallway, an elevator, a stateroom, the cruise ship word for a hotel room, a casino, a bar, all the pieces of a real-life cruise experience. At the center of this maze, behind all the curtains like so many Wizards of Oz, were hundreds of engineers and designers arrayed cheek by jowl at cheap folding tables, clicking away at algorithms and app screens and floor plans. There were bounds to be hiccups and bugs, but Paget was confident it would all work out because of the hyper-calibration represented at the Experience Center. The dozen or so teams involved all sat within shouting distance, fitting together in a sprawling mosaic, the service captains sitting next to the developers, so that they'd all understand one another, just like the crews that build an aircraft carrier. People ask me all the time how you deal with complexity, Paget said. It comes down to putting people together and letting them work it out. Paget was by turns proud of what he's made and eager to get beyond it. He was wary of offending all the Disney people he once fought in the palace intrigue. He wanted to crow about Carnival's project and also to distinguish it from what came before. But it can't help but be an extension of the Disney work. Even the sound stage was something he'd learned to do at Disney. At Disney World, it was fronted with broad windows that had been blacked out. The designers inside used to giggle at the chatter they could hear on the other side. Parents, thinking they'd found a corner for privacy in front of a disused building, yelling at their pouting kids, We came 3,000 miles to get here and you will have a good time. That soundstage is what secured the sign-off on the $1 billion budget. Today, it's gone, and there are almost no photos of it, thanks to Walt Disney's founding obsession with hiding the mess behind the magic but you can see what it must have been like at Carnival's Experience Innovation Center. I began my tour of what a Carnival cruise would soon become in a fake living room, with two of the best-looking project staffers pretending to be husband and wife, showing how the whole thing was supposed to go. I saw the app and how you could choose all your reservations. I saw how, just as with Disney, the ocean medallion would arrive in the mail. Once on board, all you needed was to carry the device, a disc the size of a quarter so that it could be worn within a bracelet and carried in a pocket, for any one of the 4,000 touchscreens aboard to recognize who you were and act just like the app on your phone. The experience recalled not just scenes from her and Minority Report, but computer science manifestos from the late 1980s, written by the visionary Mark Weiser. He called his movement Ubiquitous Computing, the dream was to create a suite of gadgets that would adapt to who you are, morphing to the needs you had based on context, whether in a meeting room or a bedroom. Behind the curtains, in the makeshift workspace, 
pride of place was given over to one giant whiteboard wall, covered with a sprawling map of all the inputs that flow into some hundred different algorithms that crunch every bit of a passenger's preference behavior, to create something called the personal genome. If Jessica from Dayton, Ohio, wants sunscreen and a Mai Tai, she can order them on her phone, and a steward will deliver them in person, anywhere she finds herself across the ship's 17 decks. They'll greet Jessica by name, and maybe ask if she's excited about her kite surfing lesson. Over dinner, if Jessica wants to plan an excursion with friends, she can pull up her phone again. But in that case, the recommendations won't just be tailored to her, but rather the overlapping tastes of her group. If some people like fitness and others love history, then maybe they'll all like a walking tour of the market at the next port. Jessica's personal genome would be recalculated three times a second by a hundred different algorithms, using millions of data points that encompassed nearly anything she did on the ship. How long she lingered on a recommendation for a sightseeing tour. The options that she didn't linger on at all. How long she'd actually spent in various parts of the ship and what's nearby at that very moment or happening soon. If, while in her room, she had watched one of Carnival's slickly produced travel shows and seen something about a market tour at one of her ports of call, she'd later get a recommendation for that exact same tour when the time was right. Social engagement is one of the things being calculated, and so is the nuance of the context, said Michael Youngin, who'd worked with Paget first at Disney, then at Carnival. Finishing up the tour, I saw a flicker of the personal genome. As I walked around a rigged sun deck with the Compass app open on my phone, I could see that the options for nearby entertainment would shift as I crossed the room, as the servers crunched new data about what was nearby and what I had chosen. It was like having a right click for the real world, or being in a sci-fi movie come to life. Time and time again, in the move from paper money to credit cards to mobile payments, one iron law of commerce has been that less friction means more consumption. Standing on the mocked-up sun deck, knowing that whatever I wanted would find me, that whatever I might want would find its way onto either the app or the screens that lit up around the cruise ship as I walked around, it wasn't hard to see how many other businesses might follow suit in the coming years, or try to. One way to view this is, Creating this kind of frictionless experience is an option. Another way to look at it is that there's no choice, said Paget. For millennials, value is important, but hassle is more important because of the era they've grown up in. It's table stakes. You have to be hassle-free to get them to participate. By that logic, the real world was getting to be disappointing when compared with the frictionless ease of the virtual world. For a company such as Carnival, Selling real-world experiences, the only way to compete, and the only way to get a new generation of customers onto its ships, was to exceed the ease offered by the digital experiences people already knew from everyday life. First, Carnival had to engineer an invisible sensing apparatus analogous to that of the web, so that a system could sense a person's behavior, then deduce whatever they might want. Once in place, the ship systems could do more simply because people had afforded them greater permission. People expected to be wooed or even wowed because a cruise was supposed to be bent to their whim. By 2020, when the Ocean Medallion will finally start appearing across dozens of ships in Carnival's fleet, 
with greater and greater refinements to its sensing capabilities. The best place to taste the future won't be in a skunk works lab in Silicon Valley. It will be from a deck chair afloat on the Caribbean, with the smell of suntan lotion in the air and a Mai Tai in your hand. Whether or not the project ultimately succeeds in its grandest goals, which extend at least another decade into the future, it is still a bellwether for design and technology, and for a world where your environment would be every bit as important as the device in your hand. The Regal Princess was nothing if not the smart city advertised endlessly by companies such as IBM, a place where the smartphone had been taken to its logical endpoint, so that impulse and desire were always available, not just on a device, but in the environment all around you. With your wearable tucked away, you didn't have to go to the casino to gamble. Any screen you approached on board would become your own personal casino, with all your preferences and history seamlessly uploaded. The Ocean Medallion promised to transform the cruise ship experience into a personalized voyage at a massive scale, where touchscreens would recognize you as you move past, allow the film Minority Report, where crew members would know you by name as you approached, know where you were going, and be able to act as personal concierge even if you'd never met them before where anything you wanted to eat or drink or buy would find you. Looking into the future, the designers of the Ocean Medallion imagined a bar where your drink preferences would be mapped to your behavior and where the ingredients would be updated based on the local bounty as you moved from one place to the next. They prototyped a virtual reality experience that would let you don goggles, which would reveal the dinosaurs that once walked on the beach you were at then turn those memories into movies that would play across your in-room TV. Taken as a whole, the vision was an Uber for everything, powered by Netflix recommendations for Meatspace. And these are in fact the experiences that many more designers will soon be striving for. Invisible, everywhere, perfectly tailored, with no edges between one place and the next. During the three years or so I'd followed the Ocean Medallion project, it often tottered under the weight of its own ambitions. Many of the basic pieces ended up having to be totally re-engineered due to persistent bugginess in the systems. It was as if, by 2019, they had built the whole ecosystem not once but twice at astronomical and highly secret expense. And yet Paget was, true to form, undaunted. He wanted to increase the speed at which new ideas for the Ocean Medallion were being invented and deliver them to more and more ships, faster and faster. I asked him what the hardest part had been and how this project compared with that at Disney. His non-answer was revealing. He talked about how at Disney, the bureaucracy was the most daunting challenge. What had taken three years at Carnival took more than seven at Disney. But, he implied, once the magic band was delivered, the staff at Disney World knew how to hide all the kinks in the system from the guest, making everything appear seamless in the end. At Carnival, it wasn't so easy. Here, the planning and strategy was easy, but the activation and orchestration was the hardest thing to do, Paget said. It had been difficult training the frontline staff to understand how powerful the change they were being asked to deliver was. It had been hard making them understand just how much was changing, 
from how they greeted guests on board to the nature of the job itself. Hearing him talk, I couldn't help but think how similar this was to life back on shore, where entire workforces are now being asked to reorient themselves to the rhythms of software updates. Around the time of the beta launch, in November 2017, I had asked Paget why he cared about any of this enough to work on it for a decade. It was obvious that hundreds of millions of dollars in technology might make the experience better in a theme park or a cruise ship. But why did he care? He seemed, after all, like a guy who'd made enough money to be playing golf all day. Some of it's craziness and some of it's principle, he allowed. It always galled me that in the vacation industry, people call it innovation when you segment some tiny group and do something special for them. Democratizing what was previously only for the elite is a game changer. As he explained it, the economics for the vacation behemoths put personalization out of reach for most, because the guest experience usually evolves along two distinct paths. Those who can afford to pay top dollar for customization, itineraries based on their interests, butlers who know about their dislike of cilantro. For the masses, operators focus on getting more bodies through the gates more efficiently. The Ocean Medallion was a different thing. The idea that, using technology, you could tailor a mass experience to feel personal. Paget wasn't necessarily an idealist. He was a pragmatist who began his career at Disney as an MBA-toting finance guy. When he crunched the numbers, serving a few rich people never made sense to him. It improved a business only around the margins. It didn't grow the whole business. But get someone to venture out on a couple more excursions, get them to try a couple of activities that they otherwise would have skipped, and maybe they'll have a better experience. Create better memories. At some point, the dollars and cents of frictionless transactions would bleed into the squishier stuff of experience. How people enjoy themselves. How they remember. What they remember. If better memories mean that people are 10% more likely to return, that's a windfall. That's why Paget was able to sell Arnold on the idea of retrofitting the fleet, with the setup costs alone running into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Paget often likened the medallion program to the smartphone, a platform that will evolve over time, and which comes with the implicit promise that, year by year, it will eventually do things that hadn't seemed possible before. All of it was built upon knowing more and more about the user. The last time we talked, Paget showed me the idea at the heart of the ship, an intricate map of every inch inside, every deck. And as you clicked into the details, you could see bubbles representing exactly where each person aboard was in real time. You can see here there's a lot of people on the balcony, he explained. You could click onto any of those bubbles, any one of those people, and see exactly what they were doing and what they had done last. Paget, a couple of years before, had told me that with all this hyper-personalization, with all the crew around you knowing what you're interested in, what you did today, and what you'll do tomorrow, the key would be making people feel the personalization as a luxury and not as a creeping incursion. If it's your birthday, a crew member should be socially savvy enough not to say, hey, I see it's your birthday, thereby alerting you that you are, in a real sense, being monitored. 
Instead, they would tune their appeal. They might ask, are you celebrating a special occasion with us? In doing so, they would open a conversational path that might seem like a lucky opening for freebies or better service, but which had been quietly engineered all along. Yes, we've invested in technology, said Swartz, but we're spending countless hours rewriting procedures and role descriptions. If I want to share a glass of wine at sunset, I won't have to interrupt the moment to make eye contact with the waiter. It will find me. But the crew bringing the wine has to be trained to let me have that moment as well. Those subtleties offer a lesson for companies such as Google, Facebook, and Apple, which are now creating a world of hyper-personalization. As the gadgets around us become more and more capable, they'll need to become more polite, more socially aware. They'll need to adopt better etiquette, and to do that, they'll need to model our mores better. They'll need to reflect a new way of designing that better models human-to-human relationships rather than human-to-thing interactions. The next generation of design will become less about screens and things and more about scripts and cues. What we heard in the last chapter, in the development of more humane technology, is true again. When technology gets laced into the fabric of everything, what we demand is that those technologies hew closer to our social mores and the expectations of polite society. While it would seem like etiquette would be easy, a simple matter of common sense, consider how delicately we're still fitting social networking into our real-world relationships. In the last 10 years, the ways we represent what we know about one another have evolved. You might chit-chat with colleagues and ask them where they went to college, even though you know where they went, because they're always popping up as a suggested connection on LinkedIn. To do otherwise would be weird. It might imply a stalkerish level of interest, even though the ease of Google has made it the first stop after you meet someone new. Elsewhere, you might follow someone on Instagram, but refrain from hitting like on one of their posts because you don't want them to know that you know something so personal about them. The point is, we're still figuring out how much to share about what we know of someone else, even while all of us on social media know the data is already public. As we're negotiating this new terrain, the social networks themselves aren't nearly so adept, because advertising creates a third class of user, so that we can never know who a product is really intended for. Interacting with social networks can be like having a conversation with a gossip, whose handiwork you can detect only afterward in the startling things other people seem to know about you. Recently, a friend of mine, a single woman approaching her mid-thirties, started getting ads in her Facebook feed for egg freezing. She'd never thought about it before, until that moment. And then she thought about it all the time. When she shared that bit of weirdness with her friends, none said they had seen the same ad but they had all been targeted with their own too-perfectly-targeted advertising. Not long ago, I started getting ads for acne treatment featuring an Asian male. I'd had acne as an adult. I'd never talked to friends about it, or as far as I recalled, even Googled acne treatments, because I wasn't too bothered. But somehow, an algorithm had sniffed out just enough data to find me, on the chance of targeting and insecurity. These ads are examples of technology that we'd quickly call creepy, 
but might also simply be labeled as rude. They glean what they can about us without ever getting to know us. Instead of engaging us in conversation, they stare at us from the shadows and collect gossip. Just like someone walking up to a person he knows only on Facebook and asking how dinner with the family was last night, these ads behave sociopathically, spouting everything they know about us from the moment they arrive. The ad industry can target us in new and mysteriously accurate ways, but the ads are still delivered in formats that borrow from the billboard metaphors created during a previous era of impersonal mass communication. In fact, within the marketing industry, the largest sized banner ads are called billboards. If you were to open up a conversation with someone about egg freezing or acne medication, that might be a conversation they'd want to have. But shouldn't a conversation start with, hello? And yet, eerily accurate advertising isn't just being foisted upon us. It also reflects a more general expectation that whatever fills our lives will be customized to our demands. We now expect the feeds we see on social media, or the news we see, or the emails we read, to be filtered on our behalf, so that we see what we want and nothing more. The unsettling nature of modern advertising today is merely the intimation of a greater trend. This book began with a century-long journey to find the user in user-friendly, the history of how people have come to understand who people are, what they need, and what they'll use. In the early decades of user-centered design, this meant finding the principles that underlay how we expected the world to behave. It meant inventing new technology that anyone could use, because it already made sense. But smartphones and connectivity, which have allowed the world to come to us, have created a new era in which we all use the same containers, whether it's apps or smartphones. But everything inside is different for each of us. John Paget liked to call it the market of one. Where design was once concerned with knowing the user, the things we've created now try to understand us as individuals. The writer Tim Wu offers an exact year when this new era began, 1979, when the Sony Walkman was introduced. With the Walkman, we can see a subtle but fundamental shift in the ideology of convenience. If the first convenience revolution promised to make life and work easier for you, the second promised to make it easier to be you. The new technologies were catalysts of selfhood. They conferred efficiency on self-expression. We have reached attention, even a breaking point, in user-friendliness. The commonalities in design that technology has been driving toward in an effort to make things easy to use, have finally run aground on the truth that we are not all the same person. This is one reason that so much money and attention have been pooled into machine learning and artificial intelligence. The human beings have done the work that humans could do, understanding what we all share so that the stuff in our lives can make life easier. But at the most far-reaching scales, there aren't enough people to curate countless markets of one. We're hoping the machines can build the last mile that the creators cannot predict. And, at the end of that connection, there's just content. The container makers themselves are beginning to look more and more like media companies, competing not just to bring us to the table, but to keep us there, at the table they've each designed. Apple has its multi-billion dollar effort to seal up TV deals, 
and a growing team of content editors behind Apple News. Facebook, after a decade spent decimating the publishing industry, now finally admits that it, too, is a publisher, and not just a technology platform. Google, meanwhile, has quietly become the technical plumbing for delivering stories on the mobile web. That's why so many stories we read now bear not the publisher's URL, but Google's, while at the same time trying to turn YouTube into an outright replacement for TV. Amazon has not only a $5 billion movie budget that dwarfs most movie studios, but an ecosystem that revolves around everything else you might buy, watch, or read. And it's sticking its name on more and more stuff, from furniture to Ethernet cables. Once you've come close enough to fine-tuning the design of an empty box, the only thing left to do is fill up that box with so many different things that people can't help but keep opening it, and then use algorithms to make sure that the perfect thing sits right on top when they do. And that interaction has in turn reshaped how our user-friendly products engage us, making them far less like tools to augment the mind, as Doug Engelbart dreamed of, and more like the stage for our everyday lives, filled with so many perfect recommendations that the real world can't compete. It is fair to worry. Nick de la Mer was one of the designers behind the Magic Band and the digital experiences that sprouted from it, or at least tried to sprout from it, but never came to light. He was working at Frog Design, but just as their competitors had, Frog evolved into designing the more slippery stuff of experience, how people lived, and not just what they touched. Delamere eventually quit Frog to start his own design firm, and one of its first projects was for the University of Texas's campus in the Rio Grande Valley, one of the poorest parts of the state, home to tens of thousands of migrant workers and their children, who, if they got to college at all, wouldn't be arriving on the backs of SAT tutors and guidance counselors. The kids there had jobs at Walmart and Costco. They didn't have their own cars. They were the first generation in their families to go to high school, not to mention college. For the university, de la Mer's firm, Big Tomorrow, proposed creating a virtual college campus to be joined up with something like the Disney Magic Band. Classrooms wouldn't be on a grassy college quad. They'd be in strip malls, next to where the kids were already working. To get everywhere they had to go on this distributed campus, the kids would simply hop aboard a bus with their sensors. They could have their educational progress tracked and personalized through a persistent data profile of what they were learning and how well they were performing. It made sense for a new type of student who couldn't bank upon the vague promises of a classical university education and needed to know how their educational investments would pay off. After all, these were students whose digital lives were already customized to them. It made sense for higher education to be remolded to fit their particular lives. That pitch was eventually grounded by the university's operating model, yet another organization limited by its own design. Still, de la Mer worried about the future he was proposing, which took the personalization afforded by Disney World and Carnival to its logical next step. What would it be like when even education was tailor-made? Would it mean that we would all live on islands of our own creation? Would it mean that the world of Facebook tribalism, where people listen only to the people whose views chime with their own, would then become not just the world of Facebook, but the world? What would it be like to grow up inside that? 
Delamere mused. How might that facilitate or hinder things like selfishness, empathy, and our ability to deal with adversity? How strange it would be if the user-friendly world, brought about by industrialized processes for fostering empathy with users, ended up not increasing the empathy those users feel, but stunting it.